art is the is the dream life of the culture of the moment that makes it so it'll be i feel like we will look at art to know what this meant to all of us collectively and it'll be fascinating to find out do you like books i'm outlining a new writing project who wrote this book read it what do you read it? sometimes i write something what are you writing have you written anything lately i'm amanda stern and this is bookable On today's show, are you having trouble staying focused? Well, so are National Book Award winners. For our second Bookable bonus episode, we asked Jennifer Egan and Susan Choi to talk for a half an hour. And the conversation was so electric, they didn't stop talking. And we are so lucky for it. We have two authors at the top of their game talking about productivity in pandemic times. They also talked about matters of luck and outlining, beginnings and endings, and one of my most favorite pieces of writing, the PowerPoint chapter in Welcome to the Goon Squad. Just on a completely personal note, I have not been able to write for two entire months, and listening to this conversation catalyzed me to get right back into my own work, which I've not been able to do. So hopefully the conversation will also spark something in you. So, without further ado, I give you Jennifer Egan in conversation with Susan Choi. Hi. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I the I've been dying to talk to other writers during this period and I've actually had the chance to talk to a lot of them because we are doing all these virtual events now with each other like I got to talk to Amity Gage um actually over email. I talked to Michael Cunningham the other week and I was interviewed last week by um, a different podcast and the interviewer said to me, you know, I've talked to so many writers who say that they're so incredibly focused during this period of the pandemic and that they're getting so much done. And I was like, I almost felt like it was a setup. I was like, "You, you must be kidding me. Who are these people who are so incredibly focused and who are getting so much done. And, you know, it's so much more common for me to talk to friends of mine who are writers or who are otherwise creative types who are like, are you also having the the problem of not being able to do anything? Like anything. I mean, my day is sometimes winnowed down to like a single thing I have to do and I forget or I do it late or I do it wrong. So I guess my question for you, Jenny, is like, are you one of them? Are you one of the super productive people? Tell um, the truth. I would say no. Um, I definitely feel like there's, at the beginning, I I mean, I should start by saying I do work at home. So if you compare my situation to, say, my husband's, who runs a small theater company <laughs> and can't even do any work at all and had to pull down a show that he had just opened you know, I'm in fat city because I can do my work. And in fact, I can do it in exactly the place that I usually do it. Right. Um, right. There's nothing, you, you're not missing like your whole, your offices and your theater and your coworkers and your, yeah. Exactly. Or my collaborators. So I, I definitely am not, I don't have those inhibitions and therefore I felt like okay, you know, I have a book due in September. There should be no problem here. And I have pushed ahead as I probably would have anyway, but I do, I have found that there have been things that have been really hard. One is, you know, there are people around me constantly, which I'm not used to. (laughs) And they're not just people. They're like your immediate family. 
Exactly. Like everyone's here. It can be hard to find a room where I don't hear someone else loudly zooming. Um, (laughs) You know, um, there, you know, there, there have been a lot of disappointments and stresses for my kids, starting with one of them having to come back from college when he was just settling into his freshman year. Um, so that is always, you know, very distracting and kind of consuming, you know, summer plans evaporating long awaited, you know, things that had been worked for and hoped for gone. So that has been pretty distracting at times. And then I think that the, probably the thing that has been hardest for me or the, the thing that I've really had to push through in working is just a kind of free floating sense of of doom, which is something that I struggle with anyway. Um, and sometimes it kind of fixes on the work itself where I just feel like (laughs) the sense of doom is because this project is doomed. Um, but in this case, the combination of the, this really harrowing illness whose effects and, and aftershocks we are still learning about and the horrifying lack of leadership at the top is just it makes me feel like I'm in a runaway train or something in moments. And when I'm really full of that feeling, that can be very distracting. Right. Right. Of course. I mean, it's distracting. It's distracting for, for anyone, but you know, how do you cope with it when you're writing? Is it, do you power through? Do you just give up for the day? Do you find that that sense of doom is like insinuating itself into the writing itself in ways that you like or you don't like like what what do you how do you respond when the sense of doom descends what i find in general because i'm definitely someone whose thought patterns are often negative <laughs> let's say um is that the main thing i have to do is just not stop <laughs> like it often mm-hmm. feels, oh i can't continue with this but actually i can i mean the only thing that that really means work is not going to happen is if I actually don't work. So I've tried to stick to a schedule, which I've done with more or less success, but even more or less success is often, you know, getting stuff done. I mean, in the end stuff, stuff will get done. I mean, I'm also trying to meet a deadline of September for uh, turning in a book. So I actually am under a fair amount of pressure um, which can, which can be good and bad. Like the feeling of pressure alongside a feeling that good work isn't happening and I can't make this pull together is a terrible feeling, but pressure also is an impetus to keep working, which is always the solution. So right. I, I just, I try to just not, I try to just do the thing, even though part of my brain is saying, it's not going to work. It's bad. It doesn't matter. The world is going to hell. I just sort of try to keep going despite that noise. And I've had to, I I'm fairly used to these negative soundtracks. So I, I'm, you know, I'm practiced at working amidst them, even though it's not pleasant. Right. That's amazing. So essentially you've had negative soundtracks in the past. This is a new loud, different one, but you've evolved kind of the skills to tune it out. I mean, what, I remember reading something that you said in The Secret Miracle. Do you remember that um, that anthology that Daniel Alarcon put together about novel writing? I don't know if you 
even remember what you say in it. Um, but one of the things you say that I'd like and that I've actually often taught to my students is that you don't work from outlines, but that you outline drafts after you've written them. Does that sound familiar to you? Is that actually something you still do? Yes, that is very true. Um, although it, it depends a little, I mean, the, the kind of book it is also informs the process. This mm-hmm. I'm working on now is consists of pieces put together, sort of like Goon Squad. And so in that case, I, it's sort of like right now that my outline should be, or the structure should be clarifying. And one thing that's very concerning to me is that that is not happening as easily as I would like. Um, so, uh, but yes, I definitely don't have an outline or even a plan, even if I'm working on something in smaller pieces like this is, only once I have a draft of anything do I have a sense of what it is and how to improve it. Um, for right. sure, because I often don't even need an outline. I mean, it's just the the you know the the scope is small enough that I can just sort of keep it in my head. But I think that one, you know once I have something that I think has life to it, then that's easier to to work on even amidst distraction. The hardest part is generating new material. Um, and that's where just slogging forward um, is, you know, even amidst a, an uproar of negativity is essential. Um, right. Tell me how, how you, where you are in, in your process. I mean, you're, you're also promoting right now because you have a new paperback, which is a very different moment. So I, I'm, tell me kind of where you are in your creative life and how it's been impacted. Oh my God. I I wish I knew. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out all the time and yeah, I have a paperback to promote, which, um, is not actually taking up very much of my time or energy, um, in this reality that we're living through. Um, you know, I had a book tour that was canceled. Um, some small portion of it has kind of been resurrected as online events, a very small portion. I would have been traveling almost continually for, um, much of this month. And instead I'm not traveling at all. Nobody is really who's inessential. And I have to say, it's maybe terrible to say, but I've only been happy. (laughs) I've only been happy that I'm not doing that traveling and that I'm not actively promoting the book. I don't have any idea how the book is doing, but I think that I've been able to, I've been able to kind of feel very disconnected from this paperback publication in a way that's positive. Um, Not that preoccupied by it. I know my publisher would like cringe if they could hear me, you know, when they hear me say that. But I think that um, it has let me just kind of like go to that other sort of very private interior level of, well, what am I going to make now? Or what am I going to do now? And, and, you know, um, not really thinking that much about like, what's it going to turn into, you know, the whole public, the whole public realm of what we do, right? Like, so weird, because we spend almost all of our time alone doing this thing very privately. And then there is that like public dimension where we promote and it's, it's exciting, but distracting. So I've been in that private space and, um, and it hasn't been that productive, to be honest. Like, I want to hear more about what you're writing. I've been, I've found myself learning without dread or 
to a couple of different projects that I had abandoned. And that's been interesting to go back to them and to not be horrified, um, to be kind of intrigued now. But it feels like a very languid return. Do you know what I mean? Like, I look, I read, I write a little, I put it down for days. Like, I'm not keeping a schedule like you. I'm not working every day. I'm barely working every week. But it sounds very organic, which I think is such an important part of all of it. Um, There's a kind of, I mean, I take a long time to write books and I often think I really want to speed it up and I actually do, (laughs) but yeah, um, who doesn't? Me too. But I also feel like there's just a way in which there, you know, sometimes like I'll sometimes just lie in bed in the morning and kind of focus in an almost dream state on a problem. And, and sometimes I feel like I can really give it some time just, just doing that. So Mm -hmm. there's, there's so much else that has to go on. And I find especially problem solving, you know, sometimes just sitting there staring at, at, at what you're doing is not the moment when solutions come. I mean, to me, solutions come actually one thing that has been really frustrating is not being, I mean, I like going to the gym. (laughs) I mean, it's such a, (laughs) it's such a first world complaint. I mean, but, but, you know, I have to say, like, I, I, I'm starting to think I might have to be a person that actually buys a piece of gym equipment and has it in my office because I actually find that I get a lot of ideas while working out and I I make tons of notes. It's just a moment where I feel like the, the increased blood flow actually makes ideas and connections happen. And so now I'm, I mean, I, I ride a bike a lot, but you can't make notes while you're riding a bike. So I feel like things are sort of floating through my head, but not necessarily catching and, and being as easy to recover later. Um, but I just, I have such a belief in the organic nature of the process and what you're doing sounds to me like the beginning of, you know, sinking in with something instead of just grabbing hold of it and saying, okay, I'm doing it now which feels very forced, you're kind of, you're just easing toward it in a, in a really slow and natural way. I hope so. I mean, I, I hope so. And I completely agree with what you're saying about, for me, it's not working out specifically, but I actually think there is something to that, um, that process of like getting out of your brain and into your body for some amount of the day, like we spend so much time in our brains and like staring at screens and reading books and trying to put words together. And I also find that I have to kind of shove myself sideways out of active thought to solve a lot of creative problems. And although it doesn't happen when I'm working out, it does, it does tend to happen like when I'm taking a walk or hiking or like, there's so many, so many books of mine, I can remember kind of coming into focus suddenly as I was like, walking down the street or taking a hike or otherwise like engaged in like moving through space in my body without thinking about that project. And suddenly, ta-da, I'm like, oh, uh, now I know. Like I suddenly know what's supposed to happen. So I agree with you that I don't know if it's blood flow or (laughs) or if it's just not trying to come at the thing directly. But for me, those, those, mental connections that happen when I'm not trying to form them are really important. And that's, that has been a challenge of being 
in quarantine, like where there's, there's really, there's a limit on how much movement we can engage in. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, walking is great. Although even there, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I, it's, I find it really hard to breathe well with a mask on. Um, like it's just very uncomfortable for me. Um, and, and not relaxing. And I have to kind of focus on that. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's all kind of shifted. Um, but I think that, that not looking at it directly and letting answers come is, is just crucial. Um, it really, at the same time, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, that's, that's, that was it. I mean, I, I, I agree. And at the same time, going back to what you've said about, it's such a funny balance, right? Because on the one hand, you kind of have to hope that you drop into these dream states at some point in your daily life where you make those connections without having to drive at them directly. And on the other hand, you, you do, you're talking about keeping a schedule. Um, and I also, when I'm more, when I'm more sort of into a project and kind of have at least some vague idea of what it is, I also do that. I like try to write a certain number of words or a certain number of hours a day. And can you talk about that? Cause that's what you're doing right now. And I'm not doing it. Like how can you talk about what, what your book is at all? Is there any, is there any uh, way well, you can evoke it? Yeah, I think I can. I mean, it feels a little risky because I don't know that it's going to work. Um, but, but I've, you know, I'm trying, I'm writing a companion volume to A Visit from the Goon Squad and <gasps> wouldn't call it a sequel because it's not, although some of it, I mean, it, you know, A Visit from the Goon Squad leapt 10 years and in, leapt into the future, which was basically right now. It seems mm. so far away. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like, it's unbelievable. Um, so this one goes up to about 2034, which again, feels like the tremendously distant future, um, which also, of course, will be here before I know it. But um, anyway, so I'm following various characters, many of them in the sort of generation that are still kids in Goon Squad mm-hmm. in their futures. And I'm happy about the, about a number of the parts, but the big question, and this was a question I knew the answer to by this point with Goon Squad was, you know, can these things actually cohere in a way that, that makes the whole really a whole more than a story collection, which is a perfectly fine and wonderful thing to write, but not what I was trying to do. And that is not clear yet. So I have a lot of work ahead of me. And the original material that I've been writing is just more parts of this project. Um, you know, some of it I've, I've written in the past few months. A lot of it I had already written over the past few years, but, um, you know, some of it, you know, I mean, for example, with Goon Squad, the PowerPoint chapter, I actually added at the very last minute after I'd sold the book. So I, and, and I, I actually strongly believe that book would not have had the good luck it had without that chapter. So I'm sort of hoping that some, some of the essential elements that will really make this book be whatever, the best that it can be, and I don't know what that is, I'm hoping that some of that may even be yet to come. Um, But we'll see. I mean, you know, the problem with the the very unconscious way that I work, especially with a book like this, where it doesn't follow a a plot trajectory per se, is that 
I, there's a lot of uncertainty. I mean, there's just no guarantee. And I definitely have these moments where I think, you know, I've had a great run of luck here and good luck streaks don't last forever. We all know that. (laughs) I'll just think, okay, I'm watching my good luck end. It's happening right here in front of me. Um, And then I get really worried, of course, and upset. Um, But, you know, it's just, I mean, there are so many joys to this work, but that uncertainty, and you alluded to it earlier, the, the kind of transition from private to public and from, in this case, parts that are, that seem exciting and fun to a whole that seems exciting and fun. That's I a, was, yeah. It's a big leap. I hope I, yeah. I hope I pull it off. I, it is truly unclear. <laughs> it's so, I, I can't, I just love, as you were saying what you just said, I was literally about to open my mouth and like interrupt you again by completing your sentence. Like, the part, the parts to the whole part of it, because I mean, I never knew that about the PowerPoint chapter. And that blows my mind because I agree with you, um, that the book, it's really hard to, I feel like I, for, for all that we work with language and we write books, I never have the right language to actually talk about how I think they work. So I'm going to try to muddle through this idea that for me also in Goon Squad, that PowerPoint chapter is somehow like the inciting action. I mean, it, it's it's deep in the book, but it is a spark or it has some sort of chemical relationship to the rest of that book that without it, the book becomes a completely different work in my mind, um, which isn't to say that it's the best part of the book or the most important part of the book, but just that it did it did cause this combustion, I guess, in the way I experienced that book that I can't imagine the book not having. And it's impossible, I find, to plan that kind of thing. And so I agree with what you're saying that there's so much uncertainty. You can be assembling all of these different parts, but you have no idea like what's going to be that, what's going to be that factor that causes them all to like combust and make the kind of energy you want them to make together. So that makes sense. Like, you know, and when you said a minute ago, I mean, I'm curious, you said a minute ago that when you were writing Goon Squad, you knew by now that it was going to come together and you feel like you're in a similar place with this new material and you don't know. But what, what was that place? What do you mean? Like, I know you don't mean you were two thirds the way through it or you'd, you know, you'd hit the 10,000 word mark. Like what, what milestone had you arrived at? I knew where it began and I knew where it ended. <laughs> I knew uh-huh. I had the beginning and the end. I don't actually know that with this book. And that, that is a concern because I feel like I need to, that has to come into focus because I have to then support those choices. <laughs> um, so, you know, it feels a little delayed, but you know, there, what does that mean? I'm comparing another big problem. I mean, I guess a fear, of course, every book has its, its dangers. And I, I would love to actually then after this, hear you kind of talk about that whole parts issue with trust exercises, because you have a very similarly, you know, um, compartmentalized form of storytelling. Um, but, uh, 
you know, I don't want the, I, ideally, I would like this not to just be a satellite of Goon Squad. If that's all I managed to do, in my mind, I will have failed. You know, what I would like, and it's, it is asking a lot <laughs> to, um, you know, to take, to write another book that is related to a book that's probably been overpraised and had tremendous luck. And I want it to be better actually verifiably better than the first. Mm. I mean, you know, it doesn't always go that way. And first of all, I can't control what anyone's going to think, but I would at least like to think that. Um, And right now, if I can't manage this, this synthesis into a shape that is really sound, I I know right now that is not going to be the case. So that is, that feels a little dangerous, but you know what? Not dangerous. Like I have to carry bricks on the edge of a mountain you know it's it's it's, it's a very, all relative <laughs> it's a cushy danger but it's uncomfortable time for a short break when we come back jennifer and susan return to old material make some strange connections and muse on the magic of an unswept corner stick around Welcome back to this bookable bonus conversation with Jennifer Egan and Susan Choi. I want to know if you returned to this material or if you never left it. That's a great question. Um, I think I never left it. I mean, for one thing, there were a lot of failures with Goon Squad. Like there were characters I wanted to pursue. I couldn't make it work. There were things I wanted to do. They failed. So that that book always, you know, I mean, there's always this weird way that a book starts to seem iconic even to the author once it's between covers because it's so, like, finished. But the truth is, it was the best I could pull together. That's what that <laughs> book was. And um, so so in that way, it, it always felt like, and, and you know, when I published um, a, a kind of genre piece about one of the characters, a, a kind of minor character, just a couple of years later, um, which will hopefully be part of this book, which in which I kind of took a character from Goon Squad who is a fairly minor character and put her into a very genre-ish spy story. Uh, and that was now eight years ago. So I guess I, I guess I never really left. I was thinking about whom I would like to visit again and how I would like to do it. But once again, a lot of my hopes didn't pan out. I mean, my ratio, you know, of, of rough draft attempts to, you know, stuff that actually became parts of chapters, it's probably under 50%. So lots and lots and lots of material that just went nowhere. Uh, but that's, that's kind of normal for me. And is some of that material that just went nowhere what you're trying to reanimate now? Or are you choosing different routes? No, that stuff, that, the stuff that went nowhere is from the new book. I mean, there was plenty of that with Goon Squad too, but I never, I actually have not returned to anything that failed for Goon Squad and tried again because I don't have, I think it really was not, it was moribund, that material. It's not, mm-hmm. I can't made it. Um, it had to, it had to feel fresh and sort of relating to a new set of ideas that I, that I'm working with here, 
you know, it's, I don't, I don't want to write another book about time. That's for sure. Um, so if it starts to feel like it's the same book, that, that would probably be the biggest failure of all, actually. Um, you know, a, a different book that doesn't quite work, I would take that over a, a kind of slightly duller repetition. Right. But what I want is, you know, shocking, revelatory newness. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we all want. <laughs> I know, I know. It's the it's the holy grail. I mean, that's what we want as readers and writers. And it's yeah. you don't get it very often, if ever, as a reader or a writer. <laughs> um, but tell me, I want to hear a little about this parts versus whole, you know, the kind of synthesis question with trust exercise. We've talked about this a little because when I interviewed you at Greenlight Bookstore, we touched on it. Um, but I, I guess it would help me to hear it, maybe just to use some of the lessons you learned in this part that I'm struggling with now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the difficulty is I feel like you mentioned luck and you were talking about luck and, and getting lucky and your luck running out. And, and I was going to protest and say, you know, it's not luck, it's work, <laughs> it's work. And, um, and, you know, and your brilliance coupled with your work ethic. But now I find myself citing luck also because ah. with the trust exercise, I do feel like there was a really big element of, of luck with it or um, luck, like kind of combined with inattention. Um, you know, I was, and we talked about this before, but I was writing that book as like a distraction from something else that wasn't going well. And so I was never giving it my full attention um, in the way that I was giving that other failure my full attention. And that thing that we've been discussing of like strange connections forming when you're not looking directly at something, it kept happening with the trust exercise material. And it kept happening because I kept walking away from that material because it was never what I was really doing, quote unquote. You know, I wrote the material that's now part one. I wrote that material for fun and it ended where it ends because I lost interest in it. Like I lost interest, walked away for over a year. And it was just, you know, I also have like a lot of stuff lying around that'll never be published. Um, and then a lot of stuff lying around that who knows, maybe I'll pick it up and it'll get folded into something else. But that's what that part one was. And then, you know, one day it captured my interest again as something that might've pissed somebody off where I was like, oh, you know, what if part one was actually something that someone else is really angry about? And that's what brought me back to it. And that was part two. But I think after the two parts existed, one and two, and I was conceiving of them for the first time as two parts of some larger whole, that was when things got really, you know, squirrely. Do you know what I mean? Because like, that's when I, I feel like I was, I was in a place similar to what you're evoking, where I suddenly thought, oh no, I'm trying to make a hole out of these parts. Whereas before I was just playing. And now that I've consciously decided that this, I don't actually know what the rest of the parts are going to be. I didn't know if there would be one more part, if there would be two more parts. I wrote a bunch of different parts that I kept trying to kind of, it's like the, the third Lego that will snap the first two together. I kept, I kept sticking stuff on to these elements and nothing worked and I I overthought it and I 
choked. And, um, you know, ultimately it was my agent who said something very freeing to me that was so helpful. She said, I feel like the third part of this book is, is some unswept corner that already exists. Just some small thing that you've like maybe overlooked that's already there. And I loved, I've talked about this in a million times just because I love it so much, but that idea of the unswept corner was really evocative for me. It was like a metaphor that she just gifted me. And I was like, oh my God, wait, she's right. Like there's something that's already here, you know, in the way that you were talking about how once you have a draft, then you have some kind of a plan, but you never have a plan. I think it was realizing that maybe with these first two parts, I actually did have more of a draft than I thought. I love that image of the unsuck corner. That's so interesting. I, you know, one thing I think of is my friend, Sarah Z, the sculptor, who is just, I think maybe my favorite living visual artist. Um, I I know Sarah too, and love her work. And she, she says this thing that I find so helpful, which is the work makes the work, which is obviously very different, uh, you know, statement. And yet in a way it's saying the same thing, which is, you're already in the room. You're already sweeping. Like you've, you've built it. It's just a question of recognizing in what you've done, what else needs to happen. It will suggest its own completion. If you, if you look carefully. Yeah. Yeah. You can really see how that's true in her work. (laughs) Um, Sometimes I don't totally see it in mine, but in a way that the PowerPoint is sort of an example of that because I'd been, I'd been trying to use PowerPoint for a long time. So it's not that it was a last minute inspiration. I was desperate to make PowerPoint work for me. It's just that it's actually quite hard to write fiction in PowerPoint because it it doesn't lend itself to fiction in many, many ways. Very hard to portray action. Um, And it has a very cold corporate vibe. I mean, it's a corporate tool. And so, and so, but it went, but the very, you know, very late in the game, I suddenly had an idea for how that of having a child using it. And that was kind of a helpful discovery. But another thing that I often find with solutions, the really good solutions tend to solve more than one problem. Because again, if it's a structurally sound solution, you should feel that completeness on every side, not just like, oh, it checks this one box. You know what I mean? Yes. So in my case, it was a, it, it did something, it was much more essential than getting PowerPoint into my book, which no one was asking for, believe me, um, which was just that it let me find a way to write about one of the central characters at a future point, which I had not been able to do before. So I guess what I'm hoping with this book is that there are a couple of crucial moves that have yet to be revealed to me that will be important, that will allow me to transcend these parts and synthesize them into a whole, a whole. And I'm, you know, I think I'm going to hold on to that idea of the unswept corner because it's, What's so comforting about it is the idea that you've already seen it. You just have to recognize it. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly why it was so effective. I don't even know if, I think I've told this anecdote back to her, and I'm not even sure she remembers saying it, but you're exactly right. It is a comforting image, and it's comforting for exactly that reason. Um, And 
you know, this idea that the solution is going to suggest itself is, I, I exactly recognize that it's, it's mysterious sounding because it seems as if, you know, we're, we're relying on some sort of strange mystic process, (laughs) but it's actually just, I think it's actually just the strange delayed process of, you know, um, always having sort of more balls in the air than we're aware of just in terms of making work. And, you know, it's like what you were saying earlier about it's like, sometimes when you're working out, like you catch the ball mentally, you're like, Oh, that there's, (laughs) there it is. Like there's, there's the thought that I, like I've been consciously chasing it, having no idea where it is. And it just fell into my hand. Um, Yeah. I think that there is some way in which this period of time also is, is both, really challenging for that to be happening and also really conducive for it. It kind of depends like on what, for me, it depends on what sort of mood I like meet the day with. Um, But I I am having days that are feeling very like, I don't know, fertile and productive in ways that I can't define yet. That's interesting. I mean, I feel like there, you know, there's an intensity to life right now for sure you know, the stakes feel very high in a way that in normal sort of contemporary American urban professional life, they aren't really, not really. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, so that, so that there is that intensity, but I think um, for me, as I mentioned before, the, the feeling of dread can be a problem because it's distracting and it's not productive and then the other thing is I really am used to being alone so much. And that, even though I, I also had a, a bunch of travel things that got canceled. So there was a certain kind of, um, you know, crowd integration that didn't happen, but just sort of being around family all day while uh, wonderful. I mean, I, I, every parent wants to be with their kids on some level, I think, you know, even though it may not always be comfortable but it is, I do feel like um, my focus on household and sort of motherly activity is often not in, not really in great sync with the mindset required to have these insights. Uh, so that's another a, a kind of a, a source of tension, which is just another way of saying what so many people have said, like, working at home with your kids at home, even though my kids don't need me to help them work. I mean, they're 19 and 17, but you know, it's just, it feels like uh, my duties are increased for sure. Um, I feel like I'm constantly cleaning. I'm doing like mountains of laundry. I'm, I've never cooked more ever. (laughs) Oh my God. Me too. I have to say I've never cooked more and I can't believe how much we eat. I'm like amazed by us, um, yeah. you know, impressed. And I'm also like, we're not obese. How is it possible that we eat this much? Like, I feel as if we should all be the size of the house for the <laughs> amount of food we go through. But yeah, there is, there is, there is this weird, weird um, need. I think you must have it too. I definitely have it um, for, for sort of mental emptiness. Like I often find that there's some kind of a lag time where if I actually am alone, like if I'm at a writer's colony or retreat or otherwise in one of those kind of artificial situations in which there are no demands placed on me and I'm not in contact with anyone for hours at a stretch, if not for the entire day, my brain goes elsewhere in the, in the way that 
it does. I mean, I guess this is what meditation is about and all of the other sort of disciplines, but like the brain behaves differently when it's kind of taken out of circulation and we're not out of circulation right now. You know, we're, um, we're always kind of bumping up against quotidian stuff. And I do think that there are ideas and thoughts that are probably like lurking for me somewhere, somewhere in some holding zone where I'm like, they're not showing themselves yet. And um, I'm not sure when I'm going to make them emerge. It's yeah. not going to be soon though. I, it'll be interesting to reflect on this period. I think that there's this, it's so, it's, it's an odd combination of extreme and mundane um, because the nature of the extremity is that we are, we are, immersed in domestic life to a degree that is unusual, Mm -hmm. Um, especially as New Yorkers. Like, you know, we, we just often like my husband's in the theater. So he's, he's goes out to shows a lot and we won't even really sort of have a proper dinner or maybe he eats with friends and I just have a snack and, you know, on the, on the weekends, we usually only have one teenager here. He's often out. So this feeling of all of us being here has, all the time, which is not just a feeling, it's a reality, has, has made, is, is very unusual and, and wonderful in ways. And I feel like we've had conversations that we wouldn't have had otherwise, and I'll always be happy for those. But it also just pragmatically, it means like, I have to constantly mop. I feel like everything is always dirty. <laughs> I'm one of that. My one of my kids says that he thinks he said he said it's concerning. I think that you have an obsession with vacuuming. <laughs> you were like, I think what's concerning is that you don't. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny. And then there was a period where I was like, I was trying to vacuum, and then and they all kind of jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah, she loves to vacuum. She can't stop. And so then I was like, slightly ashamed of my wish to vacuum, and I was trying to do it when, you know, if someone wasn't in that part of the house, I would like sneakily vacuum. <laughs> I don't know if I would get caught with my vacuum and be a little bit abashed. It's like, you know, this was all, it was funny, but it it was not really helping me with my book all that much. (laughs) No, it's so funny. It's, it's, I mean, I won't, I won't speculate on how much cleaning the other members of your family are doing, but don't let anyone shame you for wanting to vacuum. I, I make my bed obsessively in this quarantine mode. I never did in the past. And there's something about it where I'm like, my brain will not operate if my bed is not made. And it is, you know, it's funny. Like when you were talking about this crisis mode that we're in that's so mundane, it is, we're, we've been strangely like returned to a previous century that we that we don't belong to where, you know, I sometimes feel like I'm living in a farmstead, like at the edge of nowhere, you know, where like I'm looking through the freezer, like what meats do we have left stored up, Pa? You know, like what, what, what's in the larder? Like these little concerns, and um, you know, how much lettuce is left in the backyard lettuce plant? Um, yeah, it's it's such a strange journey to be taking as like 21st century New Yorkers. There's a little bit of Little House on the Prairie about it. You know, I go to bed at almost the same hour every night. You know, as if, yeah, as if all the, all the candles blew out at once. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because I think you, you're thinking about, you know, homesteading, but for me, the analogy is more like fifties housewife 
who, who's, um, kind of, whose wish to control, you know, destiny of her family members expresses itself in homemaking and in, in the vacuuming, <laughs> uh, vacuuming, mopping, um, you know, just kind of a, a you know, a, a feeling that if I can just get rid of the dust everywhere, you know, then things will be much better. Um, so, which is kind of funny. And I, even when I was, when I was sick, I was still, I felt this obsession with cleaning, which I thought was, I mean, it was partly that I just didn't want my family to get sick. Um, but it has continued. So it's something beyond that, which is, I mean, and there, I don't want to diminish it. Like I've always taken a certain real satisfaction in making the place where we live better. And so in a way, something like vacuuming, I mean, it seems hilarious and I'm probably going to now prove my children right. There is such a satisfaction in seeing a result, you know, immediately you can say, this is now better than it was. Well, I can't, it's a lot harder to do with a book <laughs> and I, I feel like not having that effect. So give me a damn vacuum cleaner and, you know, set me to work. And I feel like, well, at least I got that done today. <laughs> I know that's such that's such, that's so true. I think that might be the bed making. When I make my bed, I'm like, I can see a visible improvement. <laughs> yeah. And when I look, when I look at my work, I'm like, no, the visible improvement is, has not has not emerged. Exactly. Not yet. Exactly. So, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what comes of all of it. I mean, I'll, I'm very curious to see what the artists do with the pandemic, because I feel like, you know, art is the, is the dream life of the culture of the moment that makes it. Um, and, you know, fiction maybe being one of the more narrative forms, but, but all of the arts. So it'll be, I feel like, we will look at art to know what this meant to all of us collectively. And of course it's also very individual. Um, and it'll be fascinating to find out. <laughs> right. It will now. be fascinating to find out. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. We're, we're going to, we're going to have to wait. We have to wait to know what's happening to us right now. Even, exactly. even this, like what feels so mundane, having a conversation like this that you and I would normally have sitting on Fulton street at a bar or at a coffee shop. Um, this for right now feels utterly normal that we're talking through our laptops to each other, but yeah, there's going to be this moment in the future where we're going to go, Oh, that's what that was. Yeah. It's amazing how normal it's become. Um, and that, that is, you know, one question I'm always asking myself is just how will this sort itself out environmentally? Um, because I feel so concerned about that all the time. Quasi mm -hmm. um, obsessive degree, which I think is warranted actually by the danger that we face. But I do think that the, you know, the knowledge that you can actually have meaningful interaction and, and you don't actually always have to be there is useful. That's not, that's not something I really knew, I have to say. Um, and it's, it's great for me to learn that, um, because it just offers other options that are yeah. easier on the planet. It does. It does. There are, there are certain things, there are certain things that I have thought, um, in doing them, you know, pandemic style, I've thought maybe we should just stick with this, th with this method. <laughs> 
<laughs> even even afterwards. Um, I can't cite specific examples, but I think you're right. I mean, we're we're gonna come out of this into a completely different reality, you know, different from what we're in now and different from what we've been in. And yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see which habits of ours return and um and which new habits of ours stick, you know. Well, you know, so it's going to be different. One thing I've, uh, one concrete discovery I've made that um, sort of exemplifies what you were just talking about is that we, I have a writing group that I'm part of and we've been meeting in one way or another, some, some of us dating back to like 1989 and others more recently, but one of us moved to California years ago. So she's been remote and like on FaceTime and the rest of us have been meeting in person and it's kind of, it sort of sucks for her because she really is at a remove from all of it. And so during the, during COVID, we've now just been meeting on zoom. And what we've discovered is we're going to continue that way because it works much better for her. And now we're all remote. So we're sort of all on equal footing. And then yeah. as about the friend of mine, whose office we were meeting in, in Manhattan, she has some underlying health conditions and she's not going to be going to her office anymore. So I, it'll be interesting to see, like it's a tiny microcosm that that in which a few concrete things have happened that have resulted in a, a joint decision to continue virtually, um, even when we're able to meet in person. So some of that will happen, and 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 yet at the same time, I think what all of us will feel is the the joy and the privilege of being able to actually sit down with someone. I mean, I miss that, you know. I know. I miss it too. But I, I agree with you. I think we're revaluing it. You know, I don't think we're saying like, oh, being being in person isn't as important. I think we're we're realizing it's not the default. It's not just the only way to do things. And it has this greater value and weight to it. And I think we're becoming aware of the moments at which that's what we need is to actually connect in person. And the moments at which actually we don't need that and and you know, maybe the the savings in time and in fuel, um, in not doing whatever that other thing is. I, I think the example that I thought of was, I had a I had an appointment with my doctor through my phone. Just I just needed a refill of a basic prescription. It was not interesting, and we just needed one of those touch base meetings where I normally would have like spent three hours of my day like getting on the subway going all the way to the doctor's office, sitting there, waiting 40 minutes to talk to her for 10 minutes, and then going all the way home. Right. And instead, we did it on my phone while I sat at my desk also doing other things. And it was awesome. And I have to say, I think she found it awesome too. <laughs> she was like, this is so much more efficient. And I didn't, you know, I wasn't one more body moving through the city for like two hours just of a 10-minute conversation with a healthcare provider. So... That was a brave new world moment where I was like, yeah, I'll do it this way every time in the future if I can. Obviously, you need to actually be physically present with your doctor sometimes, but not all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, as I guess like like everyone, I've been listening to our governor <laughs> um, and he is very, you know, I think not not in a an overly rhetorical way, but he has reminded us again and again to think about coming out of this, you know, better in certain ways. And, um, and I hope that I can and that we can. 
And I also hope, as you said earlier, what is this? I mean, we're talking about this as if it were ending and we have no freaking idea if that's true. And I mean, I have a 90 year old stepfather and an almost 82 year old mom and, you know, my husband's mom is elderly. So I have so many worries, but I guess the other thing is, you know, even though we don't know what's going to happen, I feel like I just am glad that New York is doing better and, and feel very lucky that I didn't get sicker and didn't make anyone sick. Um, so I, I feel grateful for those good things. And, um, I think it's so important to just enjoy a good thing when it comes along because we are in a, such an uncertain moment. I agree. I've felt really happy and lucky to be a New Yorker. I feel like we have a much more unified story as New Yorkers than maybe people in other parts of the country. And that that's made a big difference to me to feel like I'm part of a story that is, is, is pretty much agreed upon. I mean, maybe that's too much to say, but it, it did feel as if for the past two months, it has felt as if there's been like shared goals, shared concerns, shared actions, you know, it's like, we're still going outside every evening at seven and screaming. Um, yeah for joy. And I think that, that to me is, you know, is a proof that we, that we're sharing the story in a way that is making a big difference, you know, knock wood that that continues. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, it's interesting to hear the way you say it, which I totally recognize. And I think the way I've thought, cause I, I have had friends who've said like, Oh, I wish I could have gotten away. Like people went to second houses if they have them or to stay with relatives or whatever. But I just feel like I love New York so much. It's my chosen home. And I was here for 9-11. Like, I want to see New York through this. And I want to see New York during this. And I'm glad that I've been able to bike around and just see it all. I feel like this is my place. And I'm, I am I hung tight. I mean, thank yeah. God I didn't go anywhere because I had COVID. <laughs> so I would have been. <laughs> I would have been exactly that person who was transporting their illness somewhere else. But, but even putting that aside, I just feel like it's really been something to witness. And I, I'm glad to have been here. I just love this city so much. I would, I would never, it's hard to imagine. I shouldn't say never. It's hard to imagine circumstances that would make me not want to be part of something important that happens here. I know. I completely agree. And I've, and I've been really proud of the city. I've been really proud of it. <laughs> and I've been proud of us as New Yorkers. I think that we've, you know, I mean, I don't even think we know what we've been through because it's not over. And I, and, and even though we all, I think, are feeling a change, you know, there is a change in the air. Um, I don't think, like you said, I think we're going to look at art and we're going to look at other things to to figure out what this was. It's so different from anything that's ever happened. So different. Yeah. And hopefully different from anything that will happen in the near future. <laughs> we'll see. Amen. We'll yeah. see. Thank you, Jennifer. And thank you, Susan, so much for such an inspiring conversation. Jennifer Egan's most recent book is Manhattan Beach, which is published by Scribner and available now. Susan Choi is the author of Trust Exercise, which is published by Henry Holton Company and is also available now. Bookable is a production of Loudtree Media. 
I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall but growing in productivity. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designs the show. Bo is Loudtree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com and subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. That's one of the best ways for other listeners to find Bookable. We're back next week with another episode, and we will see you then. This is Bookable.